Hi everyone, our Bible reading for today is Mark chapter 11, verse, the first 11 verses. Please follow along with your Bible or the words on the screen. Mark 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Here in the Bible reading. Thanks, Sam. I would love to hear some of your stories about waiting. I heard lots of chat over the welcome time. Maybe you talked to someone about a time when you were waiting. Maybe you didn't. But I'd love to hear now if, if anyone feels game to call out. Can you tell me a time when you have been waiting in your life? Waiting for Jesus to return, indeed. Thanks, Annette. That kind of trumps everything, doesn't it? It's not really anywhere to go after that. Thank you. Anyone else think of a time when you've been waiting? It might be significant, it might not have been significant. Well, I have been waiting quite some time, sometimes when Annette goes shopping. Anyone else? Holidays, waiting for holidays, yes, thank you, Amy. So waiting's interesting, isn't it? Waiting is part of life. Sometimes it's pretty trivial. We're waiting in traffic. We're waiting at the checkout. Sometimes it's significant. Sometimes it's waiting for holidays and that feels like a really significant thing. Sometimes we're waiting for exam results, for uni entry offers. We might be waiting to hear about a job offer. We might be waiting to get married, we might be waiting to have a baby. So waiting can be really trivial, waiting can be significant. I wanna share with you this evening as we begin a time when I was waiting. This is a long time ago when Brian and I were dating. I have his permission to tell this story. People, <laughs> people at 10 a.m. were worried that he wasn't here this morning. We had <laughs> So we have compared notes. Anyway, this was a long time ago when Brian and I were dating. We'd been dating for about 14 months and we were both about to go away on holidays. On separate holidays, I was going with some friends, Brian was going with some family members. And before we went away, Brian said to me, he thought it would be good when we both got back to have a chat about our relationship. And I agreed, thought that would be a good idea, but I didn't know what that would look like. We didn't discuss what that might be. And so we both headed off on our holidays 
And I had a lovely holiday, but instantly in that conversation, my holiday had an extra layer over it. It was a time of waiting. And through that two-week holiday, I was waiting to get back and to see what this conversation with Brian might look like. So when we got back from holidays, Brian called me early in the first week that we were back and said, how about we have dinner on Friday night? That sounded pretty positive to me, so I said yes. And I was kind of hoping that we might get engaged, but I didn't know what Brian was thinking. So Friday night came, he arrived at my door, picked me up, and I lived in the inner west in Sydney, quite close to the city, and we started driving into the city. Now, Brian seemed a bit quieter than usual, a little bit preoccupied, a bit vague. He was driving slower than usual. I didn't really know what was going on. As we drove along, my friend Christy called. So I picked up and Christy said, hey Nat, it's me, Mike and I are outside your house. We're meant to be having dinner tonight. We'd had a mix up with dates. I thought they were coming the, the next Friday. They were there outside my house. I'd have meant to have been cooking for them. And so I put Christy on mute and I said to Brian, what do we do? Christy and Mike are outside our house. And in my heart of hearts, I was hoping he'd say, no, we're going out to dinner. But he didn't. He said, fantastic, let's go and have dinner with Mike and Christy. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, I realised he hadn't booked some beautiful restaurant for a romantic proposal that evening. So we turned around and we had a really nice night with Mike and Christy. Early the next week, Brian rang me and said, how about we go out for dinner on Friday night? This time he said, why don't we go to Doyle's Seafood Restaurant at Watson's Bay on the harbour? I said, that sounds really great. This sounded more hopeful to me. <laughs> and that time we did actually get engaged. So it all had a happy ending. I later found out that the first Friday, Brian had wanted to propose, he just hadn't made a plan. So... <laughs> <laughs> but it's all good, it's all good. A period of waiting carries with it, or can carry with it, all sorts of emotions, can't it? Sometimes it can be challenging, like it was for me waiting in those weeks leading up to that conversation. Sometimes it can be confusing. Sometimes waiting for something can be really exciting if it's something we're looking forward to. It can have a joyful anticipation about it. Sometimes waiting can be really painful. Sometimes we might be walking along some, someone, alongside someone who's struggling, who's really sick, and that can be really painful. As we come to Palm Sunday and to this, this, this passage in Mark chapter 11, it's helpful to remember that Jews in the first century were waiting. For them, I think the waiting had been confusing and difficult. Let me give a little bit of context. There's a slide that'll come up on the screen that's actually a slide that our kids use in kids' church. And I just wanna dig into a little bit of this slide. The history of God's people had peaked under the reign of King David and then King Solomon. That was the high point of the nation of Israel. You can see that under the kings. And then after that, after Solomon, things went downhill. So after King Solomon, at the height of the kingdom, there then was a split into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, 
which you can see with the two crowns there on the screen. First of all, the northern kingdom went into exile, then the southern kingdom went into exile, first to Assyria, then to Babylon. There was then a return for the southern kingdom of Israel back under the reign of Persia, back to Jerusalem. But even with that return from exile, Israel did not go anywhere near returning to the heights it had reached under King Solomon. There was no return to those glory days and there was certainly no great king ruling over them. Jesus was born hundreds of years later. You can see there at the end of the slide, after 400 years of silence, of not hearing from God through the prophets. Jesus was born at the beginning of the first century and at that time, Judea was under the rule of the Roman Empire. So they didn't have their own king still. There was a Roman emperor who was ruling over them. And at the time that Jesus was born, that was Caesar Augustus. Under the, under the Roman emperor in Judea, there were also governors who were ruling over Judea. And later in Jesus' life, that governor was Pontius Pilate, who we read about in the New Testament. But Israel was still not an independent nation. They still didn't have their own king. All of that is why God's people were waiting. Because in the Old Testament, there were promises that God would send a great king to his people. There's a few of these promises at different places in the Old Testament, but I just want to bring one for us to think about this evening. This promise was made after God's people have returned to Jerusalem, the southern kingdom out of exile, back in Jerusalem under the reign of Persia. They still had no king, but God gave them this promise in Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. So God had made this promise to his people of a good king, a humble but victorious king who would bring peace and rule everywhere. God's people were waiting for this amazing king. That's the background as we come to Mark's gospel in general and to Mark chapter 11. So what's actually happening then as Jesus rides into Jerusalem? It's not entirely obvious to see. There's a really big cultural gap and it helps if we dig down into that a little bit. My friend Kirsten sent me this photo recently and the caption was, first time we've been on the red carpet. Now, in some ways, at face value, that's a really odd message. Why comment on the carpet colour? But we know what it means, don't we? Because we understand the significance of red carpet in our Australian culture. Red carpet is for honouring celebrities, honouring dignitaries. People like sports stars, there's red carpet at the Brownlow. And at the Oscars, people like actors we honour. We roll out the red carpet for prime ministers. You get the picture. We know that the people walking the red carpet are being honoured. Maybe in some of the countries where you come from or where you've lived, there are different ways of honouring dignitaries. 
there's something similar happening in this passage. There are some cultural clues that we need to unpack. So on face value, as we heard Sam reading from Mark 11, we hear about Jesus and his disciples. We hear about Jesus riding a young donkey into Jerusalem. We read about some weird stuff happening, about people spreading their cloaks on the ground. We heard about people waving palm branches, about people cheering. People yelling out odd words like Hosanna. The cultural clue that we need to understand all of this is that the palm branches, the cloaks, the shouting, all of that was part of a Jewish first century way of recognising someone important was arriving. Let me give you a few examples. In the Old Testament, we read about a king called King Jehu, one of those odd Old Testament names. When he was made king, we read that people laid their cloaks down on the steps under him to honour him. And waving palm branches and cheering had been the Jewish way of welcoming back a conquering king for about 150 years before Jesus. There was a a king called Judas Maccabeus. He'd had some victories and he rode back into Jerusalem and waving palm branches at that time or since that time had become a nationalistic symbol. So as we read Mark 11, we see that the crowd saw something as Jesus entered Jerusalem. We hear it in their words in verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So this passage puts together some puzzle pieces for us. The cloaks, the branches, the cheering. I don't think the crowd really put it all together, but they recognised something was happening. Someone important was there. As we read we can see more than the crowd did. We hear the echoes of that quote from Zechariah 9 that I mentioned earlier. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So as we read Mark's gospel, we are meant to read this and see that Jesus was the king. He was the king who'd been promised to the Jews years and years and years and years ago. The king that they longed for under oppressive Roman rule. The king that they had been waiting for. But what did it mean? What did it mean if Jesus was that king? I don't know about you, but I'm really bad at pop culture. I'm terrible at recognising who is that important person in some social media post. I frequently say to either Brian or Toby, who is that? Uh, They usually know, I generally don't, and then I need a follow-up question about, well, what do they do? Why are they here on my screen? Some of you might remember that Queen Elizabeth II of the UK died in September last year, and I wanted to share with you a lovely story that was in the papers at the time. This is a story told by a man called Richard Griffin, who was her royal protection officer for a long time. He told a story of a day when he and the Queen were walking in Scotland in the grounds or around the grounds of Balmoral Castle, which is her home there in Scotland, and they met a couple of American hikers. 
There were, they were coming towards them and Griffin said the Queen would always stop and say hello. And he said it was really obvious when they stopped and chatted that this pair of American hikers hadn't recognised the Queen. So one of these hikers stopped and said to the Queen where they came from and what they were doing, what they'd seen in the UK. And then he said to the Queen, well, where do you live? And so the Queen said, well, I live in London, but I also have a holiday house up here in Scotland. <laughs> and the American tourist said, well, how long have you been coming up here? And the Queen said, well, I've been coming up here for about 80 years. And he then said, wow, have you ever met Queen Elizabeth? <laughs> and the Queen said, well, I haven't, but Richard here meets her regularly. <laughs> And so this, the hiker turned to Richard and said, oh, you've met the Queen, what's she like? And he said, well, she can be pretty cantankerous at times, but she's got a really good sense of humour. <laughs> so this American hiker then put his arm around Griffin's shoulder and gave the phone to the Queen and she took a photo of them. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, they kind of had pity on him. They swapped spaces and Richard took a photo of the Queen with the hiker. But they didn't say who she was at all. And apparently the Queen said to him, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows those photos to their friends in America. <laughs> and hopefully someone will tell him who I am. It's such a lovely story, isn't it? And it's a reminder, it's not always easy to recognise royalty. It's not always easy to recognise someone important. And even harder to have an accurate understanding of who they really are. So as we think back to the Jews in Jesus' day waiting for a king, what kind of king were they waiting for? Many of them were waiting for a king who would liberate Israel who would make Israel great again. The crowd saw something in Jesus as he entered Jerusalem that day. Their response pointed to him being something like a king. But were they right? Was he really a king? And if he was, what kind of king was he? We might have similar questions about Jesus. Or perhaps if you don't have those questions, you have friends or family who do. If Christians claim that Jesus is a king, what does that actually mean? What does it look like in our lives? How do we see him being king in our world? Let's have a look at how Mark's gospel lets us in on those questions. First of all, right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, when Jesus started preaching and teaching, this is what he said. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. That was Jesus' introduction to his preaching. And he then spent three years preaching and teaching about God's kingdom coming near. So that leads us to a second question. Who was Jesus and how did he fit in with God's kingdom? In the first century, there was lots of confusion around who Jesus was. But Jesus didn't want his disciples to be confused. And so he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. 
Messiah here means king. Peter recognised that Jesus is the king, God's long-awaited king. But it's also a bit confusing, isn't it? And the disciples certainly were confused, even after Peter said this. Because what they then experienced, and what we read in the Bible, is that Jesus then went on to die on the cross. That is not what the disciples were expecting. It's not something we would expect to happen to a king, especially not to a king who would save his people. But the thing is, right after Peter said this, Jesus told his disciples what kind of king he is. Verse 31 of Mark 8. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So we see that Jesus was a king on a quest, a king with a battle plan. But he wasn't a military king. His plan wasn't to liberate Israel politically. His battle was against sin and death. That's why he needed to die. That's why he died on a cross. And even on the cross, Mark tells us that Jesus was the king. Mark chapter 15. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. The notice was taunting Jesus. But ironically, it was 100% true. Jesus is a king who died, but he's much more than that. Jesus is a king who came alive again. Ephesians chapter 1 says this, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet. So Jesus is alive right now. Jesus is the king right now. He's the king of heaven and earth. He is ruling over everything in our world. He is ruling over everyone in our world. So if that is true, what does it look like for us to live under this king? What should we expect in our lives? Firstly, Jesus calls for our allegiance. Remember in Mark 1, when Jesus announced the kingdom, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Right after that, immediately, he calls for our allegiance. Repent and believe the good news. As I said, Jesus is a king whose battle is against sin and death. The Bible says we all sin and uses that word, which isn't a very common word for us in our context. I heard someone give recently a good description, I thought, of what sin is. Sin is about leaving God out of our lives, leaving Jesus the King out of our lives. And repenting means changing allegiance. It means saying to Jesus, we're not going to leave him out of our lives, that we will be loyal to him, that we accept him as our king, that we will live with him as our king. Living under Jesus the king means giving him our allegiance. Secondly, Jesus the king calls us to join him on his mission. 
I don't know if you've had a chance to look at all of our artworks. If you haven't, I hope you do later. We've got some out in the foyer and some along the corridor here. And one of the artworks along this corridor is really helpful as we think about this. It's called The Road to the Cross. This is what Josie, the artist, wrote about it. Jesus lived his whole life with a mission. He was going to save people from their sin by dying on the cross. Jesus lived his life on the road to the cross. Such a beautiful description. Jesus lived his life on the road to the cross. And now he calls us to join him on the road from the cross. Mark chapter 8. Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Brothers and sisters, the risen King Jesus is still on a mission. He's on a mission to bring his kingdom in this world through his people. One day that kingdom will come in all its fullness when Jesus returns. But right now, joining Jesus on the road from the cross means taking up our cross and following him. I want to tell you a story about a famous Antarctic explorer, Ernest Shackleton. Some of you might have heard this. He was looking to build a team for a really dangerous Antarctic expedition in the early 1900s. Apparently, he put an ad in the newspaper, and this is what it said. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, sounding attractive, isn't it? Constant danger, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. Who's there with him? I'm not. <laughs> If Shackleton really did place this ad, he made it very clear what kind of expedition he was leading. The hardships are stated right up front. And the same is true of Jesus the King. His call is deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life for Jesus. But that's not the whole story, not the whole picture. As you lose your life for Jesus and the gospel, you'll save it, is what we hear. Losing our life for Jesus is about letting him be king, giving up our desire to shape our lives the way we want to shape them. And in doing that, we save our life, now and forever. On this road from the cross, I want to mention three ways that we can do this. There are many more. And as we think about this, I wonder if you could think about a challenging relationship for you. Maybe a, a relationship with a work colleague that you find really difficult, where you've had a difficult interaction. Maybe an interaction with a family member, a relationship where there's a relationship breakdown. Maybe a difficult relationship with a friend or an acquaintance. 
As we join Jesus in taking up our cross on this road, we can do that in who we are, thinking about that context of a difficult, challenging relationship. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Verse 44. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ephesians chapter 4. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. It can be easy to skip over words like this. They can seem insignificant. But imagine the difference in your difficult interaction if this is who you are. I don't want to be simplistic. This isn't easy. But as we live like this, we bring the kingdom into our world. I love the example Bridget gave from Steve McAlpine's book of him and his mate in the police department and of that woman who pointed to them and said, these men speak about their wives as if they love them. They were living the kingdom in that workplace. Take up your cross, friends, and follow Jesus in who you are. Secondly, we join Jesus in taking up our cross on this road in what we say. 1 Peter chapter 3. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. That is, give King Jesus your allegiance. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. We're not all evangelists, but as we join Jesus on his road from the cross, our lives will look different from those around us. So when people ask us about that, we join King Jesus in taking up our cross by having courage to talk about him. Imagine if someone had said to Steve McAlpine, why do you? Talk about your wife with love. He might have said, because I know Jesus loves me and he calls me to love her. I don't know what he would have said. But that's an opportunity for him to give a reason for the hope that he has. And to do that with gentleness and respect and with a clear conscience. Take up your cross and follow Jesus in what you say. Thirdly, we join Jesus in this, on this road in how we wait Revelation 22 tells us that when Jesus returns, we will see the throne of God and of the Lamb. Jesus will be declared on that day as king for all to see. And we heard that in Philippians 2 from Ian earlier as well. Until then, we journey on the road from the cross, waiting for that time when everyone will recognise that Jesus is the king. Sometimes this road is really challenging and some of those challenges come because not everyone sees Jesus as the king. Many, many people aren't living kingdom-shaped lives and that brings us into tension with them sometimes. It's also challenging for us to keep dying to self-interest, to keep taking up our cross. I also love Steve McAlpine's description of being the best bad guy you can be as we wait for Jesus to return. John Dixon is a Christian author and speaker and he's thought about this a lot, about 
living for Jesus in our particular culture. He talks about the need for cheerful confidence to walk this road of people who belong to King Jesus. He talks about having cheerful humility to lose well when our path crosses that of our culture. We don't have to be anxious about winning every battle. Jesus is the king. What he calls us to is to trust him, to live for him in who we are, in what we say, as we wait for him to return. So brothers and sisters, there's a beautiful challenge here for us to take up our cross and follow Jesus in how we wait for him to return. When Ernest Shackleton was gathering together his team for that expedition, he received 5,000 applications in response to his ad. I kind of don't believe that, but uh, there you go. Uh, That is, even though he admitted what a hazardous journey it was, even though it was so dangerous and safe return was doubtful. Jesus calls us to take up our cross, to join him on his mission in our world. The journey may look hazardous, humanly speaking, but on our journey with Jesus, the end is sure. Jesus is king. Jesus is building his kingdom, with or without us, and Jesus will one day return. What a wonderful invitation we have to join Jesus on his road from the cross as he builds his kingdom.